you want to talk about? Jesus. Jesus. Who is the King of Glory? I was just thinking as Linda was talking about how fast her house came under contract and everything, it's like, how cool is it when you step over into that flow of life that comes from when you do seek first the kingdom of God and things just start being added and, and earthly blessings just start coming up behind and overtaking you. Just to be able to enjoy that because it's you're not then it's those things are doing what they're supposed to do. They're just there for you to enjoy. You're not getting life out of them. And everything. We're talking about how fast your house come under contract because you've given yourself over to that seeking first the kingdom. And these things are just added. They're just yep. Because you're not looking for life from them. You know, your, your, your life is not upset if that thing didn't happen. For a few weeks. What I was going to say is you guys are all so good looking. You've got to be the, the best looking church people in the world. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, maybe me and you know, but the rest of them, okay? If you, I'm gathering you don't think you're one of the good-looking people, all right? I don't either. But, man, look at your wife. Look at these guys. Well, this is true. Look at Rick, that jacket we already, and then Linda over there with the, I don't even know what they call that, the vest. That looks so great with that shirt. Classy. Man. Thank you. You guys rock. See, reason to get up this morning. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh my goodness. They're both present. Thank you. For the for the longest time I've just been living by there since they're one flesh when one of them is here, they're both here. <laughs> there is more than we wrap our heads around sometimes. Yeah, living and moving and having our being within a life that cannot die. Like living and moving and having our being within an indestructible life. Right? That's uh, where you start finding yourself animated with grace. Right? Where you're not just like... You're not just uh, in the place of suffering and I need grace, but you just find your whole being permeated with grace all of the time. Right, and, and we kind of been conditioned to think I need grace when I'm suffering, um, and there's all grace for when you're suffering also. Um, but what the gospel come to do isn't just to give you grace when you're suffering. Grace is not just this thing that exists when they're suffering. Right, grace existed before there was such a thing as death. I mean, the spirit of grace was in the Godhead before they created anything, and so their whole being was animated with grace, and it didn't have anything to do with their suffering. And so the, the design of the gospel is for God to come and serve us with an indestructible life, a life that can't be added to and a life that can't be taken from, right? And that life is full of grace. And as our, our hearts and our minds become single and that's what our, we're fixated on, that's what our eye is fixated on, an indestructible life, man, we live and move and have our being within an indestructible life and we find grace manifesting every which way we go in every situation we encounter and we find that grace overtaking everything overtaking our lives and then we that's when you find great strength in the earth you find great strength boldness you find uh where you start becoming a witness of the resurrection because you're like to use the symbology it's like you're you're heaven walking on earth because heaven and earth have collided in you. 
And now you're heaven walking in the earth because everywhere you go, you're calling down the life that's in heaven into the earth. You're declaring the life that's in heaven in the earth. And what happens is, is that binds the strong man. Yeah. Right? It binds the death that torments people. It's the, let, it's the declaration of let there be light in the midst of the darkness that's in the world. And so you begin walking around with the light shining out of you in the midst of the darkness that's in the world. And so the things aren't that, aren't that difficult, right? Either you're living and moving and having your being within a life that's perishable, and if you are, there's great weakness for you, right? And you're experiencing great weakness because a life that's perishable don't have strength in it. It's perishing. It's perishing. <laughs> and and that's, the, that, that's what it says. And if your eye be not single, then how great is the darkness that will animate you? You could easily say, then how great is the weakness that will animate you, right? And so it, it's a real simple thing. When Jesus felt weak... What Jesus would do, and when Jesus taught the disciples about prayer, the reason he prayed was to go sit with the Father and fellowship with the Father around the life that they had from the beginning, right? The only real life, because he knew there was strength for him in that life. And he knew because he was in a mortal body that could perish, he knew because he was in a world that was surrounded by death and darkness. I mean, he was the only one who had the Holy Spirit. People couldn't even understand what my man said. Do you know how frustrated it is when you think people don't understand anything you say? Do you know how lonely you can feel? When you, now imagine Jesus. So there was strength for Jesus, and Jesus was animated with strength. He was animated with boldness. He was animated with heaven because he lived and moved and had his being within the life that is in the Father and not within the life that was in the world. Right? And so it's a real simple thing that the gospel comes to do. And the, the, the reason that, that Jesus overcame the tribulation in the world, it, not just in the resurrection, but, with, but in his heart, is because his, his eye was single. His affection was set on things that were above. And, and what does that mean? That, that's not some super spiritual thing where you say, um, well, I need to think about heavenly things, and i got to stop thinking about worldly things. If that's how you interpret that, you're still busy with the perishable life, right? Because you're still busy trying to mitigate death and destruction and the torment you feel. What it means that Jesus' affection was set above, he saw that there's only one life, and that life is in the Father. Amen. And that him and the Father, the life that him and the Father shared from the beginning, is the only life. It's the only thing that can give strength. It's the only thing that can satisfy. It's the only thing that can give peace and love and joy. And because Jesus was of that persuasion, a heavenly persuasion, what happened was he wasn't confused about the things in the world. He looked at the things of the world and in real time, he would discern, well, that might be nice, Yes, it would be nice if we had great wine here at the wedding, but that can't satisfy anyone. And so he never looked at anything as if it could satisfy. He never looked at anything as if it could add one cubit of stature to his life. He never looked at anything as if it could steal from his life. And so that kept him from weakness and was all the time filling him with strength. It was a constant grace. That's why it says he was full of grace and truth. And so it's a real simple thing that we, we, we gather to talk about. We gather to talk about the different 
things we experience in the world and how they might make us feel. And then we talk about the life that's in God, that's been in God, that is the only life from the beginning, so that we can find strength as we walk in this world, right? And we, we start to live and move and have our being within an indestructible life. Because guys, the world has taught us from the time we were born to live and have our, our being within a perishable life. The world has taught us that. The world has taught us to seek satisfaction in perishable things. It has. It has taught us that the peace and the love and the joy and the kindness we desire is contained in perishable things, right? And as we, if we live and move and have our being within that, that's when we're going to find the, the fear, the anxiety, and all those things manifesting in and that, us. And that's what I love as far as where you're coming from. So many wonderful grace preachers also add on the Christian self-help stuff. But that's just you know trying to jerry-rig the world to alleviate your suffering. Yeah. You know, and that's that's not that's not gonna bring any goodness long term. No, it's trying they're they're trying to mitigate death through carnal laws and ordinances. Right. Is what they're trying to do. Right? They're trying to mitigate the effects of death in our flesh and in the earth through carnal commandments in the name and ordinances. In the name of Jesus, absolutely. Thank you. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. That particular form of Christianity was worse for me than the world. The, the form of Christianity that told me that I'm going to now use the gospel to gain the riches of the world, yeah. and in gaining the riches of the world, then I will gain the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. That particular form of the gospel is particularly insidious. Because it intertwines God with it, yes. right? At least when you're just off in the world, you know you're off in the world. Well, that's why people will leave that and go back to the world. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you're off in the world, right. at least, all right, I'm off right. in the world. But right. man, when, you, when you're off in the, the world but think you're off in God, then it becomes particularly insidious. That's what it means to set your affection on high, yes. right? Jesus is the word about what life is. And where life is found. Mm. He's the word. He's the only word about what life is and where life is found. So we all want, can everybody agree we all want life? Yes. <laughs> can everybody agree we all desire peace and love and joy and, and to be filled with kindness and yes. to be filled with, with all those things? Okay, we can all agree with that. Well, there's a reason why Jesus is called the word. There's a reason why he's called the word made flesh. Because he is the word about what life looks like and where it's found. Mm. And what happens is, as we begin to set our affection on that word, the same thing happens in us that happened in Jesus. Where we start finding discernment manifesting in us. Where we see things clearly in the world. And in real time, we see, no, 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 that, that can't satisfy my desire. No, 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 that doesn't have the peace and the love and the joy I long for contained in it. That just is something maybe I would enjoy. The moment it, it, it gets knocked down from something that can satisfy you or give you purpose or give you meaning, the moment it gets knocked down to that's something I might enjoy, it's no longer elevated to the place where it can serve you with pain if it doesn't happen, hmm. right? It just becomes in the place where, man, you would enjoy doing that. And if it doesn't happen, you're like, glory to God, right? Hallelujah. You move on, right? Right. 
What also will happen inside of you is if you encounter the fruit of death in the world and you experience great grief and disappointment, what will happen is your heart will start connecting with the only life that has comfort in it, right? Like Jesus, when he needed comfort, he wasn't sitting around thinking, well, where can I find it? Like his heart immediately knew, well, because the only life there is, is the life that's in the Father that we've shared from the beginning. That means the only comfort there is, is in the Father. So the moment he needed comfort, he looked to Abba. And so what happens when our affection gets set up on the life that's on high or in the heavenly place, it's talking about Jesus being the word of where life is and where life is found. What happens is when we encounter tribulation in this world and we get smacked down or beat down by the death that's in the world, what happens is is our heart will start looking to the thing on high. And there's comfort for us in an indestructible life, right? You immediately are comforted. When I was a little boy and, and I was trying to learn how to ride a, 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 a two-wheeler, man, the second they took off those training wheels, I smashed into a car, right, that was parked on the side of the road, and I got all beat up, and I got all hurt. Now listen, I didn't think to my, when I fell down, I wasn't like, where's comfort found? Like, I immediately ran into the arms of Abba, and the cut was still there. And the disappointment was still there that I couldn't ride the bike. The shame that I rode into the car was still there. The physical hurt, the, that, that the blood was still there. But the moment I was in Abba's arms, I was comforted. Mm-hmm. Right? And so what happens is when we encounter these things in, in life that give us bobos, mm. <laughs> that give us cuts, some of the cuts are deeper than other of the cuts. When we encounter these cuts, The gospel is designed to bring something forth in our heart where we begin looking to the life that's in the Father that manifested in the Son that has been poured out through the Holy Spirit that abides in us now. Beloved, now are you the sons of God. Do you know what he's saying to you? Now you have the eternal life of God dwelling in you. He says, the anointing you have received from Jesus abides in you. Do you know what the anointing is? It's the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the Holy Spirit is called? The Spirit of life. What kind of a life? An indestructible life, right? Paul said we have this, these treasure, this treasure in earthen vessels, right? And so when we see that we have an earthen vessel, and we see that that earthen vessel can be cut deep sometimes by the world, what happens is, is we're reminded of the life that's in heaven and how it's a treasure, And how that treasure is abiding in us now. And what happens is, is that starts comforting us from the inside out. It's an elixir upon our lives. And we start experiencing the God of all comfort in that moment. Because the only thing that will comfort you is to think you have life. The only thing that will comfort you is to know you have a life dwelling in you that is ever conquering. That is always overcoming. That is ever growing and expanding in you. That is ever conquering the death and the tribulation that's in the world. That kind of a life is in you now. That's how the gospel heals you. And so listen, I see what God's done in me. I was the king of wanting everything in my life to be perfect. If my hair wasn't right, I was stressed out. If my clothes were wrinkled, I thought I was going to die. You guys think I'm joking. I'm not joking. If the people around me didn't behave perfectly, I thought I was going to die. If I lost any game, even if it was a worthless game for a little piece of chocolate, I thought I was going to die. 
And you see, what happened was I looked at all those things as a sign that my life was being overcome and that the world was overcoming me. And I didn't have what I needed. But something the gospel's done inside of me, when I see hard times and I see disappointment now, I find that my heart sees the life that's in the Father. And then all of a sudden, my heart says the same thing that Jesus said. I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. Okay, if the Father's in me, that means his life is in me. And immediately, instead of looking at the darkness and thinking the darkness is overcoming me, I start thinking of the life that's in me and how it's ever-expanding. It's ever-broadening its tent. That life is in my heart, and it's always broadening the tent. And so when I see the darkness, I'm not like, oh, God, my life is being destroyed. When I see the darkness, I think of the life that's in my heart broadening the tent right now. And I think of that life that's in me, that, and it's ever abounding. I see life ever abounding, and I see there's a life in me that's going to conquer what has come against me. And then I find great boldness well up inside of me, and I find great confidence well up inside of me, and I find myself thinking, who can separate me from the love of God? Right? Neither peril nor... Why? Because the spirit of the living God is in me now. I'm not waiting to have eternal life. I have eternal life now. Woo. Right? <laughs> and that eternal life is that eternal life that I have now is so much that it even will manifest itself on the last day by glorifying this flesh with immortality. Yeah. <laughs> That's how much it is. This life that I have is so much that it will manifest. That's the whole point of I am. Tell them I am sent you. I am so much that I, when I manifest myself, there's nothing left but life. Right? That life is in you. The life of the great I am is in you. And it is so much that it will manifest itself and it will consume anything that is not consistent with life. And so this is how Jesus got by on the cross. He thought of the life that he had with the Father. And from the beginning, and how the Father was him and he was in the Father. And he remembered how this life gets down. And he remembered that this life is so much that it even consumes depth and darkness, that it brings forth order out of the midst of chaos, and that this life is so much that it will even manifest in this flesh and push the death and the sin out of this flesh and consume it to the point where there's none death and sin left to be seen. Hallelujah. And so what happens is, is when you encounter sin and death and things that are crooked, you start thinking of the life that's inside of you that consumes death to the uttermost. And you start seeing that life is upholding you. And you start seeing that life conquering. Right? Yeah. Now this happens to you just from hearing the faith. But if you ain't hearing the faith, and you're hearing something that's claiming to be the faith, it will leave you being tossed to and fro. That's right. It will leave you thinking you don't have life now. It will leave you thinking that you're separated from having life now. That one day, maybe you'll have life. Yeah. We're, we're not sure, because, you know, they're going to play the film... When you stand before God, yeah. and we'll see all the good that you did, good or bad. Brother Rick, we know you're going to have life because you're going to give me your jacket. So <laughs> we know that the video will, 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 I'm God's favorite in case you guys didn't know. And so Brother Rick offered me his jacket. We know that's going to carry a lot of weight when they play the video. <laughs> I'll tell them, man. What about my jacket I gave you? That's right. I gave it to the man I got. <laughs> oh... Right? Some, we don't know. And some, some think that you, you don't have life till the last day. Yep. Right. Listen, man, that will leave you ashamed now. Mm. Naked. Naked now. The whole point is God, ha God rebuked the devourer. 
When, he, when a man sat down, when the Son of Man sat down at the right hand of God, having inherited the glory of God's immortality in his flesh, that was God rebuking the devourer. That was God destroying the works of the devil. And he poured out that life that manifested in Jesus onto all flesh. So that same life that manifested in Jesus, that rebuked the devourer, that cast the evil one out of the heaven, could dwell in us. And then that life would start rebuking the devourer in our heart. That's why Paul said that the Holy Spirit intercedes in our hearts with words that can't be uttered. He's talking about the context of encountering hard times and how the devourer is coming to him, telling him how his life is being consumed. And he says, but I got a spirit in me that consumes the devourer. I have a spirit in me that consumes death, right? And that spirit intercedes in my heart. And when the voice of the accuser comes to me, telling me, are you really the children of God? Are you really God's son? Are you really God's daughter? Well, then how come you have this death in your life? Where's your God now? My God's inside of me. And I'm his temple. And he's taking it upon himself to keep this temple. You want to know where he is? He's in me and I'm in him. Right? And that's the Holy Spirit. A person can't speak like that, save the Holy Spirit interceding in their heart. And this is what Paul talked about. This was the power under him having patience while he waited for the redemption of his body. You ain't going to be filled with patience if you don't think you have life now. If you think you come behind in something that you need to have life now, you're never going to be filled with patience. In fact, you can't be patient if you don't have life now. It's the power of having life now that makes you patient. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. If you got some twisted thinking going on where you think you don't have eternal life, where you think you're not possessing immortality now, listen, man, you'll never be patient. Right? You'll you'll be living as if you're only earthy. You'll be thinking, I'm a mere mortal. Listen, I promise you, a mere mortal can't have peace. A mere mortal cannot be filled with patience because they're perishing. It's a very good reason. Like, listen, we could say it's not right for us to experience death, but it's right that a mere mortal isn't going to have peace because you can't have peace if you think you're dying. (laughs) You can't have peace like that. That's why God had to get it right to get his life, a life that can't die inside of us. And he had to get it right not just to tell us about it. He had to put it on display. God wasn't flippant with us. He wasn't like, listen, I'm the almighty God. You understand? (laughs) Now, sort it out and get it right to believe. He wasn't flippant. He he looked at us like equals. He didn't say, I'm just going to tell these guys the truth and they better get it. He looked at us like equals and he honored us by demonstrating that what he said was true. And what I mean by that is he took the incorruptible eternal life that he is that is in him and he put it next to the death that's in the world so we could see what it looks like when those two things collide and they collided in the man Jesus right Right? eternal life collided with death in the man Jesus and what do we see happen to death why do you think Paul says that Jesus was raised from the dead never to die again (coughs) with no remnant of sin to be seen in him anywhere What's God trying to teach us? 
He's trying to teach us about the life he has in himself and how it ever increases, how it ever abounds, how it's always conquering death, how it's never being buckled under from death. And he's trying to teach us what that looks like because he's telling us, I got that life in you, man. I got that thing in you. Right? You're not caught up in your own thoughts when you got that life in you. Because you know what your thoughts will tell you? Well, hell, even if I miss it, I got eternal life in me that will ever conquer, that will raise me up. Hallelujah. That's right. And you're set free to live innocently. Just attacking life. Right? Because even should you make a wrong decision, even should you fail at something, what happens is you think of the life that overcomes all failure. And that life is in you. And you start thinking, you start feeling excited about standing back up. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right? That's, that's really the whole power of the gospel. And fruit flows from that. And that's what God's trying to persuade us of. Right? That's, that's what he's trying to persuade us of. He's trying to persuade us of the only life there is. Right? First of all, what life is. The only life there is. And he's trying to persuade us of the substance of that life. Or its makeup. Or what that life looks like when it manifests. And not just manifests on its own, but when it manifests in the presence of death, what it does. Right? Do you see how the life that Jesus had in him ever abounded? It ever increased? It enlarged the tent to the degree and to the place where there was no remnant of weakness or sin and death anywhere to be seen in him or in his life? Do you see that? These are not just fanciful thoughts, guys, when we say Jesus was raised from the dead. There is like a depth to God's trying to say something to us that is of the utmost importance, that is of the utmost criticalness to us experiencing a life that's filled with the fruit of the Spirit now. There's a reason why Paul said what he said when he said that. Because God doesn't just want us to see there's only one life. He wants us to see how that life gets down, right? Because what happens is our imagination becomes captivated by a life that's always conquering, ever abounding, ever increasing, filling the dry places with saturation, right? That it's always taking more uh, ground, so to speak. I love the road to Emmaus, that part right there. Just I love that in the scripture because that shows to me how it overflowed into those two guys that were walking with him. Yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. He and they it. said, "Did not our hearts burn within us?" Yeah, you know, yeah. so there's this there's this thing you set your affection, and most guys go to this calculated place. Okay, I'm going to set my affection. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like it's a willpower thing. Yeah. But but this they thing, strolling. It, as we behold <laughs> the faith in Jesus on the cross, yeah. there's something in that 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 but it's a persuasion of the spirit that gets involved, and it takes mm-hmm. you captive. And all of a sudden, I saw, I saw this verse in a whole different light just listening to this today. He said, wherefore, when he ascended on high. Well, you're only going to see him ascend on high if you're beholding what's going on on the cross. And something happened, and it ascended on high. And when he ascended on high, it said he took captivity captive. He reaches down, and he takes your heart captive so that he can take you to the place where you can see what's been expounded on here this morning. Yeah. And you become captive to life instead of captive to death. And... Being captive to life is an organic thing. It's just you seeing the life and what it is. 
And once you see it, it will take you captive. And like I said, God's not flippant with us. He honors us as co-equals. What that means is God does not despise reasoning with us. He doesn't despise us needing to be persuaded. He doesn't despise that when he comes upon us and tells us, we might think, yeah, but, or what about? That doesn't frustrate him because he honors us as a co-equal and he feels joy at persuading us and reasoning with us. He feels great joy at that, right? And so that's what, it, that's what the gospel is all about. Do you see me getting tired of preaching? Not yet. Why not? I mean, I preach a lot of messages. But, well, the only reason why I wouldn't be tired of preaching is if God has been born in me. That's right. Right? And because the Father never gets tired of unwrapping his life mm. in our midst. He never gets tired of it. He never gets tired of us coming to him with questions or thoughts about it. And he never grows tired of unwrapping it. He never grows tired of it. In fact, he poured out the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit could all the time be unwrapping it in our midst. Mm. Jesus said that another one like unto myself will come unto you. And when he has come, he will not speak of himself, but he will speak of me. Whatsoever things will be revealed in me. And he will guide you into the truth that was revealed in me. What truth was revealed in Jesus? The truth about the Father. How he's the one, that only one that has life. That everything that exists has its existence on account of the life that's in him. Right? It starts teaching us what that life looks like. It starts teaching us of how that life consumes darkness, how it consumes death, how it fills all the waste places, the dry places, how it saturates everything with life, how this life is so much that even when the scorching heat of the tribulation in this world bears down on you, that you won't cease in your fruitfulness because this life doesn't cease in its fruitfulness. God's life is so much that even when the scorching heat of this earth and the tribulation in this world comes upon that life, his life is so much that the scorching heat can't stop it from being fruitful. In fact, it, it's a reaction where his life becomes more fruitful in the place of scorching heat. <coughs> Your mind starts becoming filled with the peace that's coming instead of the destruction you see. Yeah. Right? Because you see that this life was tried in the fire. That's what Jesus said, buy of me gold that's been proved. It means it's been tried in the fire. Right? Buy of me this gold because it's been put to the test in your midst. You see what it produces. Now what does it produce? Now what does that look like in my life? What does it mean that that life is in me? What does it mean that God's in me and I'm in God? For so long, because our Christianity began with God despising us because of our sin, we've just turned God being in us and us in God to he's no longer angry with me. There's nothing wrong with believing God's not angry with you. But if that's the totality of what you see, when you think that God's in you and you're in God, listen, man, you're missing the part that it's talking about the incorruptible seed that it's God's life is in you. The stumbling block, guys, was never that God was angry with us. Death convinced us God was angry with us. And so it's a great revelation to believe God's not angry with you. But you ought to get to the place where you realize it was never about him being angry with you. It was about him not wanting you to die and you were dying. It was about God not willing that you should perish. 
It was about God not taking any satisfaction in the destruction of the wicked. Why? Why was, listen, if God's angry with you over your sin, I promise you he's taking some satisfaction in your destruction. He's, he's like a human. Where, listen, if we're all being honest, there's been times in our life where we took some satisfaction at the destruction of our enemy. Right? Let's just be honest. We, we've all probably said before, well, they got what was coming to them. Well, they got what they deserve. There's no shame for us in that. We're not God. Right? But we ought not attribute those same kinds of a thought to God. Last week I was listening to, um, it was um, a, um, a forum on Veritas that uh, was um, about God, just, just the reality of God. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the guy that was presenting, totally Christian believer. But I enjoyed the whole thing, but the, the, the sad part at the end was it came down to being forgiven. Yeah. That you're just, you're forgiven. And I'm like, wait a minute, they're totally missing it, you know? And, um, and it's so sad because, I mean, he's a professor and he's everything and, and he just knows, you know, loves God and everything, but they're missing the point, you know, completely. It's just kind of surprising. Even I'm sure it's always been like that, but... Yeah, um, it's been like that since the apostles passed away. Yeah? <laughs> but the apostles were not establishing the early church. No. And... Forgiveness, forgiveness from the perspective of God being angry exactly. with you. Yeah. Because in fact, if you t- see Jesus preach about what forgiveness looks like to Peter, mm-hmm. <laughs> that if you actually look at what he says there to Peter, it would mean that God could have never made, held an account or kept a, an account of our, the wrongs we committed against him. Otherwise, he would have been dwelling in unforgiveness. Yep. Mm-hmm. Amen, that's right. And so we painted a picture of a God who was dwelling in unforgiveness. Well, and if that's your understanding, you'll run into this thing where Peter, where Jesus and Peter are going back and forth there. And Jesus thought about, I say not unto you seven times, but unto 70 times seven. And I'm like, wait a minute, but it seems like what you're saying is God will forgive me if I do this, 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 and this. So it's like he's holding me to a higher standard than he holds himself to? Yeah. It, it doesn't make sense. See, and, and in that discussion, they, they went to... Um, People forgiving others, and he talked about 9/11, and he's going. This is the good part. God's gonna hold him accountable. Sure. Oh. There's gonna come an account. And I'm like, oh my God. whoa, whoa. <laughs> it was, it was very insightful. Listen, I just, I just have to say this. Sad. That's they're not followers of the way. No. They're not. Yeah. And that is not Christianity. They're defending God. Or the Christian faith. That's that's the world's wisdom right there. Listen, death is the enemy. Death is who God scapegoats. Death is what God is coming to cast into the lake of fire. Right? Now, if people try to overcome death by their own works, they're going to perish with death. They're going to perish with death. But that's not God imputing death to them. That's them imputing death to themselves. Right? And how does that guy know that those people that committed that on 9 11 didn't cry out to the Lord Jesus? How do they know? And so it's a completely corrupt Christianity where we decide whether or not a person is good enough to be saved. And since we don't like what the people did at 9 11, which we can all admit that's the fruit of death, 
But who was our heart scapegoating for that? Death or those people. Exactly. Who's the, who's the, who did Jesus... The scripture says Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So whose work was 9-11? Satan. So who is our heart scapegoating? People. It should be death. It should be death, but our hearts are scapegoating people. Right. And if we're claiming to be followers of Jesus, and we're scapegoating people and not death, then we're not followers of Jesus. If we find a lust in our heart, longing for the destruction of people, we know it's not God. And we, we, we do greatly err not knowing the scriptures, right? Yeah. Because God is not longing for the destruction of any people. God is longing and looking for the destruction of death. That's what God is after. That's what God wants. That's what God did in Jesus, to give himself a certainty that death would be overcome in the earth and that death would be overcome in mankind, right? It says he didn't create hell. He didn't create the idea of the second death for human beings. He created it for death in the place of the dead, yeah. right? Now, because he created human beings as co-equals with him, he can't force human beings to want life. And if they don't want life and they join themselves with death, then they're going to receive the wage of their own work. They're not going to receive from God's hand death. They're going to receive from their own hand death. That's what they're going to receive. But the scripture says God takes no pleasure in that. And so now if your whole deal is telling people you have to look forward to them being punished as if that's the power to find peace. Listen, man, it says you're teaching people to take pleasure in the destruction of others. But the scripture says God takes no pleasure in the destruction of anyone. The wicked. That's the problem with American Christianity is we've created this dynamic where it's okay to take pleasure in the destruction of all the people you don't like. And we've planted that in the earth, and we've brought that to the culture in America, and we wonder why the culture now is also taking pleasure in destroying those they don't like. What do we see in our culture manifesting right now? Cancellation. <laughs> what, and so what does that mean? It's okay to destroy those we don't like. And it's good to take pleasure in their destruction. It's all easy for us to see that's not good when we think they're destroying us. But we fail to see we got a church in America that's been preaching and teaching that same thing. And what do they say about the roost, the chickens coming home to roost? You guys got chickens. What's the cliche? That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. The chickens come home to roost, mm-hmm. and we see that it's of the devil when they're doing it because we say they haven't believed on Jesus. But because we believed on Jesus, we can do the same thing, but it's not of the devil. Mm. Come on, man. (laughs) It's called hypocrisy. It's the same thing as what Jesus said to the Pharaoh when he called him him that he had Satan in him. Yeah. He said, how do your kids raise up? How do your kids cast out the demons? Yep. The chickens have come home to roost. There is a reckoning coming in the church. I love how Peter says judgment must first come to the house of the Lord. The judgment isn't a decree of God being angry. The judgment is God manifesting the truth Mm -hmm. in the midst of the body of Christ. Because God, again, thank God he doesn't think like the way the church does. He's not busy thinking that the church is despising the church. He's busy thinking, let me save the church from the destruction that's come upon (laughs) their thinking. 
right? That's what he's thinking. Why do you think the scripture says, blessed are the peacemakers? Because that's like Christ. You think Jesus was longing for the destruction of the people that were nailing him to a tree? <coughs> Does anybody suppose that what happened at 9-11 is greater than what those people did to the Lord of all glory? <coughs> I'll grant you even an equivalency for the sake of the argument. I think that what we did after 9-11 was much worse than 9-11. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, I really believe that. And that's the whole point when when you're living by the knowledge of good and evil. So Jesus, here he is. If we want to equate 9-11 to Jesus, they blew Jesus up on the cross. Mm -hmm. It was unrighteous. It was evil. It was the work of the devil that manifested at the cross. Did Jesus take pleasure in, the destru- in their destruction? Was Jesus longing for their destruction? No, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. Mm. Yeah. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Mm. Blessed are those who see God's eyes are full of mercy. You know what Jesus saw when the people were nailing him to a tree? <gasps> that God's eyes were full of mercy towards them. If you look in the Old Testament, he is the mercy seat. Do you know why there's a mercy seat in the throne room? Do you know what that's supposed to tell you? It's not supposed to tell you God won't give you what you deserve. It's supposed to tell you that when God sees you filled with death and the fruit of death, his heart is filled with compassion towards you, and he feels a strong desire to separate you from the death. He feels a strong desire and compassion towards your life to lift your life up out of the miry clay and to punish or take vengeance on the death that's taken you captive. That's what it's supposed to tell you. And so Jesus would have saw these people taken captive by death, blowing him up on the cross. And he would have seen the Father's eyes are filled with mercy towards them. And he would have seen that the Father's desire was that they be saved from the destruction that came upon them. And that's why he prayed, blessed are the peacemakers. He didn't take up the sword, did he? Mm -hmm. Instead of sending troops over there, we should have sent all the uh, angelists over there. And I won't won't fault people for having their arguments um, about what they think is better to do. I also won't fault worldly governments for interacting in a worldly way with other worldly governments. Right? But I don't confuse that with Christianity. And neither am I expecting the gospel to be declared by worldly governments. And so I'm not going to fault the worldly government for taking up the sword in the midst of another worldly government or entity taking up the sword. That's what worldly governments do. They exist to do that. They exist to protect the people by the sword. And that's a function of them coming forth or being built on the foundation of a perishable life. Everything they do is to try to mitigate death. Everything they do is to try to keep death from manifesting. So, of course, they're going to be living by the sword. And so I don't fault that. But I don't confuse that with the way of the Lord. That's not the way of the Lord. Right? And so I don't feel any... uh, I feel grief over all the death. But I don't find fault with worldly governments for taking up the sword. In fact, I don't see how there's any other way with the worldly government. Because they're built upon a perishable life. They're built for the purpose of mitigating death. And if you're built upon that, you can't expect incorruptibleness to come out of that kind of a system, Mm -hmm. right? It's built upon corruption. It's trying to deal with corruption by something that isn't incorruptible. If you're trying to deal with corruption 
with something that isn't incorruptible, then the result is going to be more corruption. Every time. The o- every time. And so that's why I wouldn't find fault with them. Because the only thing that won't deal with corruption with corruption is that which is incorruptible. Amen. And we see that manifest in Jesus. Corruption came to his house. What did he deal with? How did he deal with that corruption? He dealt with it completely different than the world would because he is an incorruptible life. Mm. Right? You only have that luxury of not picking up the sword if you're busy with an incorruptible life. And if you're not busy with an incorruptible life, I don't care how righteous you think you are, you're picking up the sword. It's just that it's it's that simple. You picking up the sword. Right? Does that make any sense? Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Right? We, man, we, we go a long way. The gospel isn't about God telling you what's right to do, what's right to believe, and now sending you off to acquiesce. Right? The gospel is a declaration of God as Father, the only one who has life in himself, and what he's done to give us the life he has in himself to where we could have it in ourselves, right? And it's designed to catch you up in a conversation with God about that life. And as you start getting down with God about that life, you know what will happen? Your heart will start putting that life to the test. Hmm. That's what your heart does. Your heart weighs things in the balance, right? When it's presented with information, why do you think you think about things? Why do you think you consider things? And so God knows your heart is going to weigh it in the balance. He knows there's a scale in your heart. We're actually weighing things out. And he actually desires for you to engage in the weighing that of this thing out with him. Right? Because he'll persuade you of what it means to have an incorruptible life. And then you'll find yourself thinking from an incorruptible life instead of a life that's perishable. Right? I mean, if you're finding fault with the, the, the worlds and the, government, the, the governments in the world, I don't think you're thinking with a, an incorruptible life, right? And I, probably some people misunderstand me when I start talking about politics and governments and, and stuff, right? I just don't confuse worldly governments with the gospel. Yeah. And I don't despise worldly governments for behaving the way that they do. They're, they're trying to get it right. The problem is you can't get death right. And so I'm not going to find fault with people who can't get death right. All I'm trying to say is they don't have an incorruptible life. I don't care how beautiful what they did was. The, the point isn't to despise, we'll use America. The point isn't to despise America. The point is just to recognize that America doesn't have an incorruptible life. Right? And so I'm not going to despise America because they don't have an incorruptible life. But I'm not going to uh, live as if they can serve me with what I need. Right? Right, and, and that's where we all get off track. Well, many of us do, right. Yeah, that's the point. Listen, I love living in America. Right. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Well, maybe Bali in that luxury treehouse. <laughs> but only because the government is like non-existent there, right? And I can be high enough up in my treehouse and nobody, there's no people there. They can't that's aggravate me, <laughs> right? But I, if I'm being honest, I think the way they wrote the Constitution is, is probably as good as human beings could get it. But the the best human beings can get it isn't an incorruptible life. It's the best they can do working with a perishable life. And so if if you're working with a perishable life to begin with, there's going to be all types of problems. It doesn't matter how good you get it. 
Because you can't mitigate death. Mitigate means make it less. Make it less. Deal with it. Okay. Right? Do away with the effects. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. And I use mitigate because you can't get rid of it. Right? So you can only lessen it in your mind. For the sake of the argument, I, I would allow the argument that the Constitution is the greatest uh, man-made document written for a worldly government. I, I, I would accept that as a valid argument. I would probably agree and amen that. Mm -hmm. Right? I think it's proven out. Right? But that the best that they got could only mitigate the effects of death. It could only mitigate tyranny. It could only mitigate bondage. It couldn't actually do away with it. And it's not because they suck, right? It's not because they got it wrong. It's because they're working with something that's already perishable. They don't have an incorruptible life. That's the only thing that can actually completely remove tyranny or bondage or a lack of liberty. An incorruptible life is the only thing that can actually remove those things. There's no man-made document that you can write that can remove death from the world. Right? That's the point. That's the point. There's no government that can remove death from the world except the government that's on the, the shoulders of Jesus' indestructible life. And I'm going to talk about the atonement today or the Day of Atonement. And that's what the Day of Atonement is about. It's about the heavenly country coming into the earth. It's about Alpha and Omega establishing his government in the earth, which is built upon an indestructible life. When you have an indestructible life that is the foundation from where a city exists, guess what you don't need? Man-made laws. Guess what you don't need? A constitution. Because that incorruptible life creates everything that is good. It creates liberty. It creates peace. It removes sin. It removes death. There is no harm that can be done in the presence of an incorruptible life. And so the Day of Atonement is about Alpha and Omega establishing an indestructible life in this earth. No more mitigation. There's no more mitigation. We're all busy with some form of death mitigation right now. Right? Like two weeks ago, man, I got these horrible migraines to where I couldn't even like stand. I could I was in the restaurant with Gary and Shelly and I couldn't even like go down the elevator without covering my eyes. I drove home like this. Oh my gosh. Right? Okay, well that's some form of corruption manifesting in my body. Okay, well I'm trying to mitigate the effects of this corruption. What it is is that my eyesight is jacked up because I worked ten hours on this little phone. And so I was busy with some mitigation. And so I got my glasses on. And now I've been reading with my glasses for two weeks. Listen, those glasses are not going to remove the corruption in my body. But I'm using them to mitigate the effects. Just like medicine, any kind of medicine. That's exactly right. Right? Well, there's no glasses in the new, in the heavenly country. Because we're not mitigating death. Because there is no death there. Yeah. <laughs> right? Good. I have this picture of when you're saying, I had this picture earlier when you're talking about death, and I, I just saw, do you ever drop a glass on a ceramic tile floor? Mm -hmm. It shatters. It's not just a broken piece that you can glue back together. It completely shatters. Right. And I was just thinking of death that way. And when you started talking about the mitigation, it's like dropping a glass on maybe the car, you know, a, a different kind of floor where it just breaks in maybe three or four pieces. 
and then you try to glue it back together. You know, we're trying to mitigate. It's still broken. Yeah. It's still broken. Yeah. So that's what I was seeing mm. when you were talking about, you know, God, God in us. We have the incorruptible light in us and all of that. I mean, I just felt like I just saw this picture of if I could just crack my chest open <laughs> and, you know, just get it in there more somehow than you said, and, and I love this because we have this, like, dynamic that goes on. He'll, I'll think something, he'll say it, or vice versa. And you said something about God reaching in our heart. And I was like, boom, I just got a huge picture of God just, you know, reaching into my heart and just massaging that even more. And just the life. Yeah. Because I was like, I went like, I was like, I just wanted to scream hallelujah when you were talking. And I was like, yeah, so that's what I have to say. One of, one of the, that's beautiful because like even when we, even when we try and glue the glass back together, you go pour liquid in the cup it's, after that, it's not working. <laughs> it's not working right. You know what I'm saying? It's not holding the liquid like it was before. One of the, the, the YouTube uh, pictures I use, I think for one of my mom's messages, is a person pulling their shirt open and light just yeah. pouring out of them. Yeah. Right? Right. It's like Superman. Even the Superman would pull open his shirt and what would it say? Yes. Where do we even think that kind of a thing comes from? How can the imagination of a human being even come up with a Superman? It comes from the longing for an indestructible life. Yeah. That's what it comes from. And it comes from thinking of how great it could be to have an indestructible life. That, that's where it comes from. That's why we. That's why we gravitate towards it so much. That's why we love superheroes. Why do you think we love superheroes so much? Yeah. Why do you think we're like wow? The X Men. Why do you think we're like wow? Right. Why would even? Why could even people even think of like the X Men? What is even the idea of a mutation? Where does even that kind of a thought come from? What about zombies? What about vampires? Why do you think we create vampires that are immortal? Why do you think we even we want to come up with something that's immortal? All these things come from desiring an incorruptible life, a life that can't die, because we see within that life is fullness. But even with the vampires that we create, it's the funniest thing, because the vampires we create that have immortality, we don't see God's the only immortal, so we create these beings that are immortal, and the way they're immortal is by sucking blood. <laughs> Something that's corruptible. The strength of the flesh. So we mix... The life of God, the only immortal, with the strength of the flesh, and we come up with vampires. We come up with zombies. <laughs> right? 10.04. All right, I got to go. Glory to God. Thank you, guys.